The problem with Leviticus. The problem with Leviticus. I, I love, I mean, I just love to grab the Bible and start reading. And I do that for me. I don't even do that for you. I do that for me. I study for you. I get ready for some things. Once in a while, while I'm reading the Bible, God gives me something, I mean, for all of us. For all of us. And it wasn't that I heard the voice of God. Let's keep that straight in our hearts and minds. I'm not standing here today saying, I'm so special, God speaks to me. But I am special enough for God to, to speak to me, to say things in, in here, in my spirit. And I recognize it when I hear it because it's usually pretty smart stuff and I know then it didn't originate with me and the devil ain't going to tell me anything good, right? What the Lord dealt with me about was, he said, when you read Genesis and Exodus, he said, I saw you cry when you read the story about Joseph recognizing his brothers and he wept. And he said, you wept. I saw that. He said, you really seem to enjoy Genesis and Exodus, but you do not enjoy Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. <laughs> Am I the only one? I just, I just don't enjoy them as much, you know? I'm reading all through there, and there's slaughtering lambs going on and all kinds of stuff going there, counting people, and they're doing all these things, you know? And, and the law is being given, and it's being explained. And a lot of them are repeated over and over again, but still there's 613 different laws listed in those three books about what people have to do. 613 laws, right? So I wrote the title of this, The Problem with Leviticus, and, and, and to start with, what we're going to do is we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Turn to Matthew 22, 34. I'll explain why we're going to the New Testament first. God wanted to show me something especially about Leviticus and Deuteronomy about what those two books are really about. And man, I was blown away. Matthew chapter 22 verse 34 through 40 says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So when he says the greatest commandment in the law, trust me, he's talking about Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all right? Because the law was given in, 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 in those first five books of the Bible, right? And, and the boring ones to me were Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all right? Watch. Jesus replied, verse 36 again, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like, love your neighbor as yourself. I enjoy reading the Bible a lot, but I don't enjoy Leviticus or even Deuteronomy for that matter. Have you ever? Have you ever? Now, I'm going to give you an example of this. We're going to dig into Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Are you going to be okay if I deviate from that a little bit? I, I, think, I think you need to be okay. Watch this with me. Have you ever seen the movie called The Breakup with Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston? It's a chick flick, but because there's a woman in my life that I love, I've seen this movie recently on like TNT or something. I, I watched it, but one part of it gripped me, and I'm going to try to describe it to you. 
there's a couple of scenes in the movie that really got my attention. One of those scenes involves Vince laying on the couch watching a baseball game on television while Jennifer is in the kitchen working very hard to prepare a meal for guests that are arriving shortly. She picks up a little plastic bag with three lemons in it and she appears to be distraught. Did anybody see that part of that movie in the breakup? Wow. <laughs> so I'm going to try really hard to describe this picture for you, all right? He's laying on the couch in the living room. It's the end of his work day. He's watching the baseball game and he's unwinding. She is in the kitchen cooking this great big huge meal and a bunch of guests are coming. And she reaches down and she grabs this little bag and it's only got three lemons in it. Have I got you caught up? All right. Evidently and apparently she had asked Vince Vaughn to pick up a dozen lemons for her at the grocery store. He never asked for clarification on why she needed 12, so he just got her three. Now the fight is on. She makes it clear to him that she wanted 12 for a lemon decoration centerpiece for the middle of the dining room table. Women, have you ever made a center decorating piece for this? She wanted to make this, this centerpiece with a beautiful bowl and 12 lemons a white bowl with 12 lemons piled up in the bowl. Now she's got this big white bowl. She's only got three lemons because he didn't see the need to give her what she asked for, all right? She also make it, makes it painfully clear that three is not going to cut it. Flash forward to the after dinner, uh, to after the dinner and the guests leave and it's late. Jennifer Aniston, I don't know the names in the movie. I didn't watch it that close. So I'm calling them by their real names. Uh, now, uh, Jennifer tries to convince Vince to help her do the dishes together so that it won't take so long. Now, keep in mind that Hollywood got this whole fight down perfectly because not only did they fight about doing the dishes, but the whole thing about the lemons also returned to the mix because every man in this room knows the whole lemon thing's not going away. <laughs> See how real this is? It's like real drama, right? The lemon thing's not going away. When the argument evolves into one about doing the dishes, Vance gets angry and says something that involves revelation about men and women. Vance angrily gets up to help with the dishes. So Jennifer tells him, forget it. He gets up and he's angry, so she said, just forget it. Ever had an argument like that? Just forget it. What she says next is astonishing to men. Listen. She concludes that she didn't want him to do the dishes as much as she wanted him to want to do the dishes. Think about that now. If you don't know what she means by this statement, then probably you struggle with reading the Bible, especially when it comes to reading books like Leviticus, because what she wants from this man who is supposed to love her, is the same thing God wants from us. God wants our love. Jennifer is looking at Vance and saying, if you loved me, you would have gotten 12 lemons instead of three, and I would not have had to ask you to do the dishes with me. So why am I picking on this story today? Why am I picking on Leviticus today? After all, the subject matter of Leviticus includes the slaughtering of animals, 
the stoning of adulterers and bodily discharges. That's one of my favorites. And we look at this and we ask the question, what has all of this got to do with love? What I'm going to do here is try to explain to you because Leviticus hides an extremely deep truth about God that we need desperately to learn. I'm going to do the best I can with God's help to explain it to you. I've got to read Matthew chapter 22, verses 30 through, 34 through 40 again. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now what most people don't know is that the first part of what Jesus said is quoted directly out of Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Where it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. But that second part, love thy neighbor as yourself, love your neighbor as yourself, it's not there. It's not in Deuteronomy. It's not there. What about that neighbor part in Matthew? Some people believe that Jesus just made this part up on the spur of the moment about loving your neighbor as yourself. However, that cannot be true because Jesus went on to say that all of the 613 requirements of the law hang on these two commandments. So those sayings have to come from the same books that the law came from. And I'll explain that to you. The part about loving your neighbor as yourself comes from Leviticus. It comes from Leviticus. In this book of the law, hidden in all of those do's and don'ts are phrases like leave food out for the poor so they don't starve to death. Don't leave something dangerous out there that would injure someone. Don't slander people. Pay people for the work that they do. That's all in Leviticus chapter 19. It then summarizes this by saying you should love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Where does it say it? Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, after it gives you all those things you should do to take care of other people. And it ends it in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now look at another verse with me in the New Testament. In John chapter 14, verse 15. You get a little, a little jumpy here, but just try to follow with me. In John chapter 14, verse 15, it says, If you love me, keep my commands. Now, I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of places in the Bible where, you know, translations, they, all, they just work. I mean, you, you see the phrase and you listen to me. This, this phrase right here is very confusing. I'm going to try my best with God's help to explain it to you. Now understand this, most of the time there's no real problem with a translation of the Bible. However, sometimes problems do arise. There is a grammar issue in John chapter 14 verse 15 that begs some attention. The question is, is this command in the indicative tense or in the imperative tense? It's important. 
Say, Pastor, what are you talking about? Well, you ought to go back to the fifth grade. Do you realize that your teacher in the fifth grade, everything she said to you was, stop talking. Sit down. Don't do that. Stop doing that. Man, when your teacher in the fifth grade, when we were in the fifth grade, I mean, look around the room. When we were in the fifth grade, when your teacher spoke to you, it was in the imperative tense. You, by jinkies, did what you were told to do, or there was going to be consequences. Right? That was given to you in the imperative. So you've got to ask yourself, is this verse written in the imperative tense or the indicative tense? And if, just come with me. We're, we're, gonna, we're going to dance around that a little bit, but when we drive the point home, when you go home today, your life is going to be different. Listen to me. I need you to bear with me while we wade through this. If we dig back into our past to about the fifth grade, we know that the imperative means a command. Back when we were in the fifth grade, we understood imperative commands because we heard clear imperative commands on a regular basis, such as sit down, stop talking. Don't even think about doing that. I like that one. That was one of my favorites. We did not have any problem understanding exactly what the teacher was saying and what we needed to do to make our teacher happy. We understood her imperative commands. The translation in John chapter 14, verse 15, uh, was not in the imperative. Not in the imperative. If you read this in the imperative, it sounds like a straightforward command. I have had people say to me that that sounds very legalistic, so it begs the question. Are we living in an age of grace or are we living in an age of law? The question is being dealt with in this passage. I tell you often, I tell you often that if we love God, we will do what he tells us to do. Have you ever heard me say that? Why do I tell you this? Because questions arise in Christians quite consistently like this. What do I have to do to prove to everyone, including God himself, that I love him? That I love him. See if you can understand this in this light. This is the same question that Vince Vaughn is asking Jennifer in the movie. What do I have to do for you to prove that I love you? In other words, he's saying, give me a number. Tell me how many times I need to wash the dishes. Because they're in the heat of the argument now, so now he wants a number. Give me a number. How many times do I need to do the dishes to prove to you that, that I love you? She knew he was not even the same ballpark with understanding what she was saying. How many of you got that? He was missing it. In other words, tell me what the minimum standard requirements are for me to perform to prove that I love you, and I will do that so that I can check that box off. And we do that to God. I mean, really, seriously, who would want to do the dishes anyway? <laughs> you know, I, I, Ruthie, I told Ruthie one day, years ago, early on in our marriage, she asked me, would you please do the dishes today? I was going to be home. And she was going to teach. I was off that day. Yeah, yeah, I'll do the dishes, you know. I started the dishes, you know. I had water in the sink. There was suds even. But when she came home, there was water and suds, and that were in the sink, Right? Now, she was very hurt, she was very upset, she was very angry with me because I did not do the dishes. And my argument back to her was this, if you knew how bad I hated to do dishes, just the fact that I filled the sink ought to make you overjoyous, right? It did not pierce the void with her. 
It did not calm the storm at all in her. So I learned a long time ago that if I get a hankering to do something nice for Ruthie, um, I can buy her flowers. But if I do the dishes for her, she didn't have to say anything about it. I'm 64 years old now. I'll do the dishes at the drop of a hat. Are you hearing me, what, I, what I'm saying? You know, oh, well, you've got a dishwasher now, Brother Dennis. I don't care. Now they want you to rinse them off before you put them in that thing, right? I still don't love doing the dishes, but I love doing them for her. And I have lost count. That's a good thing. Look at Peter's question in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Peter has a question for Jesus. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, listen, what did he say? How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Seven times? Peter's thinking, I'm going to pull seven out of the air. That's a good number, right? What did he just say to Jesus? Jesus, how many times do I have to wash the dishes to prove to you that I love you? Are you catching that? That's exactly what he did. But this, it was about forgiveness, right? Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. One passage of scripture involves multiplication. And the dentists know there's three kinds of people in the world that are good at math, you know, right? Three kinds of people that are good at math. Anyway, the punchline of the joke has to do with there's only two, not three. The dentists count wrong, all right? What the dentists know, there's two kinds of people in the world, those who are good at math and those who are not, okay? I got it. Thank you, Lord. All right. Peter notices that Jesus talks a lot about forgiving others. He perceives correctly that this subject is important to Jesus. So he wants to prove that it's important to him. So he asks a completely stupid question. How often do you want me to do this stupid thing? Oh, okay, I, shouldn't, I, I should take the second stupid out. Go ahead, Jesus, and put a number on it so I can check that box off. Surely seven should be impressive enough. Remember this, because this is so true. Do not be surprised when we attempt to box Jesus into answering a question that we think we know the answer to, that he answers that question with an outrageous number. Forgiveness with a number requirement that we will not be able to meet without the help of our Savior. Another question involving giving. How much do I have to give to prove to God that I love him? Is it 10%? Is that on my gross or on my take-home pay? How about my returns on my investments? How many different ways can you ask God? How much do I have to give to you to prove that I love you? Or, God, how many times do I have to do the dishes to prove to you that I love you? Remember again that Jesus said to love God and to love your neighbors. Focus on that. So that begs the question, who is my neighbor? After all, one second, my computer jumped. So that begs the question, who is my neighbor? After all, to love my neighbor, it only makes sense that I know who my neighbor is. So you've got to go to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
What is written in the law, Jesus says. He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So that wasn't enough for this expert in the law, but he wanted to justify himself in the eyes of Jesus. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. Uh, they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road, uh, down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert, all of a sudden, still, he's the expert. In the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. How Jesus answers the question of who is my neighbor is turned on this, expert in the law. In this story, who would you want your neighbor to be? Law is always asking for limits. How far is too far? When is enough enough? What are the minimum requirements, etc.? What did he want to know? Well, who are my neighbors? Are the guys next door? Are they the people that believe like me? Or, or is it, you know, this group of people in the city or this group that I go to church with? Mankind is your neighbor, right? But Jesus gave this man examples of four different people. You know, one was beaten, three people passed by, but he'd certainly choose the man who had mercy on him, the man who showed him love. All right, watch this with me. It all funnels down to this question. If God's going to forgive uh, missing uh, all these details anyway, why does it matter? Uh, why does any of this matter? And what I'm saying by that is there are people who believe, you know, it doesn't really matter what I get wrong. It doesn't really matter. God's going to forgive me. And, and grace covers a multitude of sins. I mean, grace covers sin. Amen? But there's a danger in just adopting an attitude that it doesn't matter what I do. God will forgive me. Are you hearing me? Got to listen. Got to follow through with it. We often think that the opposite of the law is grace. One of them is the Old Testament and one's the New Testament. When we treat these two like opposites, we come to a ridiculous conclusion that we can do whatever we want to do. This conclusion misses the heart of God. I'm going to attempt to explain the difference between the law and grace in a way that we can grasp more easily. I know people that rent out their homes to people for vacation purposes. You ever met anybody like that? One of these people that rent explained to me how it works. I require people to take out renter's insurance on the home for the duration of their stay because I don't have any relationship with these people. I don't know them. I don't have any way of knowing if they're kind people and they will take care of my property or damage it because after all, it's not their property. And they choose to not treat it, if they choose to not treat it like it's their property. However, if close friends of mine who, have, uh, who I have a relationship want to use my home, 
I'll not make them provide an additional insurance coverage for their stay. Not only that, depending on the depth of our relationship, I may not charge them at all for the stay. Do you understand the difference? It's about relationship. For the people that stay in my home for free because of our relationship, there is no list of rules in place to protect my property because they're not needed. Follow with me now. This describes the difference, the kind of relationship we would have with a God that we do not know very well. And a God that we not only know well, but we have a strong relationship with, and we know what he likes and what he wants. And that child of God does have to include a long list of rules for a relationship with a God we don't know well. You just know what pleases him, and you know what displeases him, and so the list of rules aren't important if you have a relationship with him. If you've got that kind of relationship with him, if you're doing something wrong, he does not reject you, he corrects you. When you know these kinds of truths, you begin to see things in the Bible that you never saw before. Watch this one with me. I got to thinking about the book of Corinthians and how Paul wrote this letter to correct some things that had gone wrong in the church. When he got to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is a jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not, uh, you are not worldly. Are you not acting like mere humans? He's saying that their relationship was that... Uh, like of a toddler and a parent. You, have you noticed how your relationship with your children changed as they grew up and matured? Look at it this way. The younger they were, the more rules were required to keep them safe and headed in the right direction. Am I right or wrong? When they were young, they needed the rules, right? And as they grew and they matured and they earned your trust, they needed less rules. And if they only messed up once in a while, what did you do? You exercised mercy and grace. Did you not? That's the difference between the law and grace. The law is still out there. There's people out there still trying to satisfy the law, right? And grace is good, but not when you take such advantage of it that you think it gives you license to do anything you want to do. You move along in Corinthians. Chapter 6, verse 12 says, they're saying to Paul, they're arguing with Paul, I have the right to do anything. Paul says, I have the right to do anything you say. But he says, not everything is beneficial. You say, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. The child of God needs to be mastered. Amen? Once again, Vince Vaughn tried to force Jennifer Anderson to tell him how many times do I have to do the dishes to prove to you that I love you? Are you getting it? That that is the wrong question to ask. When you're in a loving relationship, the question becomes, what is the loving thing to do? That's the question. Not how many times do I need to do the dishes to let you know I love you, but what is the loving thing to do? Why? How do I know this? Back still in 1 Corinthians. He, he got on to him early in the letter about being immature. 
He got on to them in the middle of the letter because they were saying, I can do anything I want. Grace will cover me. And he rebukes that. And then he gets to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And he says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I am only a sound, a resounding dong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It does, uh, it's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. Right? When I was little, I had to be disciplined. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, it says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put a ways. I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And by God, love does the dishes. Amen? Love does the dishes. How many times? A thousand times. Until you lose count. Love does the dishes. And God told me the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Leviticus are both books about my love. Not about killing lambs. Not about how you, you know, do all these other things, how you keep all these 613 laws, but it's how you love. What did he do when they asked him what are the two greatest commandments? And he went back to the book of the law and he said, love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul. And the second one is like the first one. You cannot do the second one until you do the first one. And that is to love your neighbors as yourselves, just like you do yourself. That's what God taught me about Leviticus. It's not a book to be speed reading through. That's what the Holy Ghost told me. You're not looking to meet a quota with me. That's what the Holy Spirit told me. I'm going to show you this nugget in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That's what the Holy Spirit told me. You're going to see this. And you're never going to see Leviticus and Deuteronomy the same in your life. You're going to slow down and you're going to read it and you're going to cherish it like you do my other books. I said, okay. All right. Man, when it says love does this and love does that, I wanted to throw love does the dishes way back up in there. But Holy Ghost said, hold it, hold it, wait, wait, wait. Have you noticed that when you have a food drive, People might ask you, how much do you want us to bring? But they always bring more. You want to know, they do not want to fall 
under the under the line that's being drawn there and say, well, we, we, we need to at least bring this. I, I'm telling you, people in the church don't do that. They want to know what the expectation is because they want to surpass it. I see you. I, I watch what you do. And, and people hear about a need in this church, they throw money at it. Amen? So I wrote, have you noticed that when you have a food drive, people might ask how, how much do you want us to bring, but others just bring more. People here just bring more. The answer to the question is, if you love me, you'd want to do the dishes. That makes it indicative tense. What does the line indicate that God wants you to do? He wants you to do the dishes. Amen? I just reached a point in my life where I'll even volunteer to do the dishes when I know, oh, man, this is a mess. This is going to take me a long time, you know. My wife appreciates it. Paul says, if anyone could have earned anything from God based on meeting legalistic standards, I counted all as loss when it comes to loving Christ because he said, I did more than all the other Pharisees. He kept the law as best he could. No one did it perfectly, but Paul did it better than the rest. Does that make sense? But he got saved, and he stopped counting all that stuff. He counted it all as loss. Keeping a quota ceased to matter. And here's what I'm closing with. In that movie, we got to see how Vince Vaughn met Jennifer Aniston and he fell in love with her and he courted her. Guys, you remember what that was like? Let me tell you a little secret, women, that you might not know. You might not have learned when your husband was courting you. Maybe you remember. You listen to these words carefully. I'm not exaggerating. When a man is working on winning the heart of the woman he loves, there is nothing that he will not do to win your heart. Nothing. There is nothing that a man will not do to, to, to have that heart of that woman he loves, to cherish and to be with. He wants to be with the rest of his life. He can do no wrong. He, he says all the best things he can say, does all the best things he can do, and he wants to win her heart. And when he wins, his heart, wins her heart, the worst thing a man can do is forget what it was like to live in the courtship stage. So we got to see in that movie of him winning her heart, and then he lost her, folks. That's why the movie's called The Breakup. He lost her because he forgot what it took to win her heart, so he lost her heart. Sad movie, right? Now, here's the thing that all I'm trying to tell you here is, it, it isn't about going to Jesus and finding out what the minimum standard is so you can meet it, so you can go to heaven. It's about just doing any and everything for him that you can do. Everything you can lay your hands on, do it for him, right? And whenever he asks, never ask him, well, how am I going to do this? You're in trouble. Count that as a, a sign that there is physical or spiritual illness present in your being. If you have to ask him, how long do I have to do this or how many times do I have to do this, you're in the wrong bar park. You're losing, you're losing right there. If you were trying to fight a fight in a marriage to keep your wife, you're losing her. 
you're losing, all right? So the question always is, you know, if you say, how much do I have to give? How many dishes do I have to do? How much, you know, uh, this do I have to do, that I have to do? Give me a number, give me a number, give me a number. Jesus doesn't give you a number unless it's outrageous, over the top, and you can never fill it. Because you're missing the point of the question. What would love have me do? That's what Leviticus is about, and that's what Deuteronomy is about. And the problem with Leviticus is it's slightly hidden. You've got to be looking for it. Stand up with me and let me pray for you. Do you love God? Well, let's stop asking goofy questions then. Father, we love him. Let's just let him love us and teach us and bring us along. Um, I've asked a lot of goofy questions of Jesus before. I used to carry a list in my back pocket, and I would think to myself, when I get to heaven, I want the answer to these questions. One day, I grew up, you know, pulled that thing out and threw it in trash because I knew when I stood before God in heaven, those questions weren't going to matter anymore. All right? Father, in Jesus' name, I want to thank you, Lord, for the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy. I thank you that two of the greatest truths that we've learned in the Bible come from those two books. Forgive me, Father, for all the years that I wrote those two books off because I didn't want to read about slaughtering lambs and cows and bulls and all that kind of stuff. And, and Lord, I just got to admit to you, you, you cover some pretty extremely personal information there in uh, that Leviticus book of yours. But, Father, I know that two dynamic truths are in those two books now, and I promise I'll slow down. I'll read them. I'll endeavor to enjoy them for your glory because that's what love does. If I'm going to read and enjoy the book, I can't pick and choose, cherry pick it, and decide what I like and what I don't like. Father, help me to accept uh, the face value of the Word of God for what it is, Lord. It's, it's a guide for my life, a guide for my life. Father, as I stand here today speaking for myself, I know I've got a long way to go about learning how to love you the way you want to be loved. Forgive me for that, Father. Help me by the power of your spirit, which is my teacher, my God, my director. The one who empowers me, the one that fills me to overflowing. Teach me how to love Father the way he wants to be loved. And to do things for him without having to be asked. And to really want to do them. Father, help me to understand that this whole world is filled with my neighbors. And that I love the whole world. I'm going to need your help to do that, Father. There's a lot of people. But, I, Father, I've come to the realization that I know that I know that I know that if your spirit helps us, we can help a whole lot of people. We can introduce them to Jesus. We can fill their hungry bellies. We can love them, Father, the way you want us to love them. Help us to do that. Lord, I hate this pandemic. I hate wearing masks. I, I hate all of this stuff because it is contrary to your word when it comes to us being together. So, Father, forgive us of our sins and shortcomings. Help us to turn from our wicked and evil ways. And Father, we know then that you'll hear our prayers and that you'll heal our land and there'll come a time again where there'll be no more masks, no more this social distancing, and we can hug our brothers and sisters in the Lord, be together eat together, worship together, fellowship, Father, without fear. So, Lord, I'm going to take another step. Once again, I'm going to rebuke this pandemic. I'm going to ask you to kill this virus. 
I'm going to ask you to calm the storms, put out the fires, and calm down these earthquakes, I pray in Jesus' name. We want to enjoy the great revival that's being, that's being birthed in our hearts and lives. We accept it, we embrace it, and we thank you for it. And once again, Father, watch over us as we depart from this building today. Help us to fellowship together for a little bit before we go. In Christ's name we pray, and everybody sin. Amen. Praise God.